Open your Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter 1. So the book of Haggai, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And uh, when you were there, please be upstanding for the reading of God's Word. Okay, the book of Haggai, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast." and on all their labors. This was the reading of God's Word. Uh, let me begin today's message by just giving you the setting uh, of today's passage. If you recall two weeks ago, God calls the Israelites out of exile to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now, of course, when they hear this command, there's fear, there's hesitancy, there's worry, apathy has set in, and they wonder, can we do this? But they overcome those issues, and they start the rebuilding project. And do you remember the first thing they do? They build an altar, an altar which was a symbol of God's forgiveness. And through this, they were reminded that God was calling his people back to him, not so that he could judge them, not so that he could keep them accountable for their sins, not so that he could punish them, but to once again be near to them. You know the most frequent Bible or frequent promise that's found in all of the Bible? The promise that appears over and over again more than any other promise is the promise, I am with you. See, friends, when the Lord calls us, when He beckons us, when He tugs at our hearts, when He pursues us, when He chases after us almost violently and relentlessly, we have to be reminded that He does so because he wants to be near his people. And this promise is found throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, and, Ze and Zechariah, the books that we are looking at. 
God promises to be with His people. And this is why He calls them, so that He can be near to them. But there's a problem. After they laid the foundation of the temple, they begin to face opposition from neighboring nations. And these neighboring nations, how do they attack or how do they oppose the Israelites? Well, they don't attack them physically. Instead, they hire really expensive lawyers and they get a court order for the people to cease and desist. They come up with all sorts of reasons and excuses. The zoning is not correct. It's not up to code. The issues of taxes are not settled. This temple is a threat to the community. And the Israelites experience all sort of bureaucratic red tape, and so the project stops. How many times have we seen projects just stop? Foundations are laid, you see the scaffoldings up, or you see the structure, and then because of some issue, the project stops. Well, 16 years go by, 16 years, and there are now weeds growing out the cracks of the foundation. But the Israelites, they are all now settled in their homes. And there is no vision to restart this project. They had forgotten the reason why they returned in the first place. They had forgotten the mission at hand. And they just went about living their lives. And that's when God sends the prophet Haggai to confront the people. That's the setting. Haggai, he's a 70-year-old prophet that's sent to the Israelites. And Outside of one other book, it's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a minor book, but again, the message is not a minor one. And Haggai, he does three things. Three things we're going to look at today. First, he rebukes the people. He rebukes the people in their sin. Second, he reveals. He reveals their heart's condition. And finally, he reminds them. He reminds the people of God's promises. So the first, he rebukes them. This is what he says, Haggai 1, verses 2 to 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Consider your ways. Consider your ways. I want you to notice the manner in which Haggai rebukes. He doesn't throw a fastball down the middle. He doesn't just say, listen, This is what you're doing wrong. Instead, he throws a curveball. He cleverly points out the people's inconsistencies. He he, he points out the people's dishonesty and their self-deceit. He calls them out and their hypocrisy by using their words against them. See, this is what the people were saying. They were saying, it's not the right time. It's not the right time to start rebuilding. Now is not the time. We are not ready. I feel uncomfortable. Now, if it was just that, it would have been fine. That's completely fine. 16 years had gone by. What is another year of waiting? But while they were saying this, while they were saying it's not time, they themselves were engaged in other construction projects, personal construction projects, projects for their own homes. You see, the people had built these beautiful cedar homes while the temple was being neglected. They had redecorated and refurnished their homes. They were renovating their kitchens. They were telling God, now is not the time. We are not ready yet, all while the contractor was giving them estimates for the in-ground swimming pool. 
And so God sends Haggai, the prophet. And basically saying this, he's saying, guys, come on. Let's be real here. Stop the nonsense. Stop the lying to yourself and to me. And he says this line over and over again, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. You know, sometimes when um, when we were young and our parents would uh, rebuke us, scold us, discipline us, right? There would be times where they would just dead on say exactly what we're doing wrong, but there would be other times where they would throw that curveball and say, think about it. Come on, think about it. Think about what you're doing. And that's what Haggai's doing. You see, if you look throughout the Bible, uh, especially the prophetic literature, you'll find that God, he is particularly bothered by hypocrisy, by deception. You see, it's okay for the people of God to be fearful. It's okay for us to go wayward because we know the Lord will call us back. But it's not okay when we pretend to be right with him. It's not okay when we pretend to be engaged but have no desire for him at all. And this is what the prophets over and over again hearken at. Malachi is a prime example. It's the last book in the Bible, and there's this um, conversation that God has with the people. And God says to the people, hey, you call me your father, you call me your master, but what you do is you despise me. And the people ask, what are you talking about? How? The people play innocent. They pretend to be ignorant. And God says, come on, you know, you know. Right? Before, you come to the sacri- before you come to the temple to sacrifice, you look at your flock, you see all the animals that you have, and then you look at that animal that's blind or lame, the defect, the one that you can't sell, the one that you can't breed, and you look at it, it's a worthless piece of animal, and you say, you know what, I'm going to offer that one to God. You know what God says as he continues this conversation? Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11, he says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. God basically says, guys, stop this, stop this, stop this nonsense. He's saying, listen, I don't need an animal. All of this is mine. This is really for you. The temple and the sacrifices was really a way for you to physically draw near to me. And if you're going to do this half-heartedly, if you're going to abuse the system, if you're going to be hypocritical, if you're going to be in self-deceit, just close the temple doors. Let's stop this. This is what the prophets talk about over and over again. Summed up very well in Isaiah 29, 13. These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And friends, you know, I, I just want to, listen, I, I, you know, friends, it is okay. It is okay to be broken. It is okay to be confused. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be fearful. It is okay to be wrestling with sin. Our God understands. He knows. That's why He is our Savior. But God hates it. He abhors it when we're disingenuous before Him. There's two reasons why God 
despises. He abhors it when we're disingenuous. The first reason is this. When we praise him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, what we're actually doing is we're mocking him. See, God knows the conditions of our hearts. He reads our intentions. He knows our motives. He knows the struggles that we are in. But when we hide behind religious practice, when we hide behind social and mission work, when we seek refuge in our past trophies, when we pretend to love the Lord, when in fact who we really love is ourselves and what we're really seeking is self-pleasure and self-comfort, we're mocking God. It's insulting to a God who is all-knowing. And so God, when it comes to self-deceit, when it comes to being disingenuous before him, he says, stop that. But the second reason why God hates it when we're disingenuous is because our God, he wants a relationship with the real you and not the pretend you. You see, God, he desires us in our strongest and our weakness. He desires us in our greatest and our most embarrassing moment. God, he wants to be near to us in our most proud moment and our most ashamed moment. Remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? There was this woman who had five husbands. The, woman, uh, the, husband that she was, or the man that she was living with was not her husband. And it was, a, it was a woman who was ostracized, ashamed. She had this hidden past, and she wanted to isolate herself from all of society. And she would go out in the middle of the day when no one was around in the desert, and she would draw water from the well so that she could live. And where does Jesus meet her? He meets her there. He meets her there at that well, which was a reminder to her of her brokenness and her sin of her past failures, her regrets, her mistakes. You see, God wants to meet us in all of our messiness and sinfulness. He wants to meet you by your well. You see, if God was completely okay with having a relationship with the fake you, he would not have sent his son to suffer in his place. He would not have sent his son to die in our place. He would not have sent his son to rise in our place. You see, the cross is evidence that God desires you in your most authentic self. With all of your flaws and your defects and your sins, he is willing to draw near to you, and he is willing and able to redeem all of that so that we can draw near to a holy and perfect God with boldness and confidence. You see, if God was completely okay with us being disingenuous, if God was okay with us just having a superficial, surface-level relationship, then the cross was not necessary. Then his son died in vain. But why did he go through the act of sending his only son to die in our place? Why did he go through that act of great sacrifice? It's because he wanted to redeem us. He wanted us to our true selves, with all the flaws, warts, and defects. In high school, I, um, I played volleyball, and in one of the years, um, we had gotten word that we had a new coach. Um, we heard that he was quite the stud, a tall, tall player 
who actually played for Penn State. And when the team heard this, we immediately knew, first practice, we need to impress them. And so you can imagine, you know, um, at our volleyball, uh, my volleyball team in high school, it was a, a bunch of Asians and Eastern Europeans. And so if you look at the back of our jerseys, we all had uh, two or three letters as our last name, you know, Joe, Kim, O, or these really long last names with like four or five uh, consonants with no vowels, right? Krasinski or something to that effect. And we, we, we were all these, uh, it was a bunch of guys, um, first practice had come and the coach walks in and we're like, all right, we need to impress him. Our team wasn't that great, but we started calling out these plays that we didn't even know how to execute. And we're just running around pretending like we know what we're doing. And then in the middle of our first practice, he sits us down and he says, listen, guys, unless you're willing to show me your true skill level, I can't help you. Show me everything that you do wrong. Show me all your tendencies. And he said this line that, that caught all of us. He says, don't be afraid to be embarrassed. Show me everything. And then we'll work together as a team. It was a real, like, remember the Titans, Denzel Washington moment. When we heard that, we were like, oh. You, know, you got to mention these, these guys, these high school students with spiked up hair, you know, bleached hair, all wearing bo- uh, Axe body spray. We're like, oh, oh. We need to be our real selves. And that's when we let down our guards and we allowed the coach to speak into our play. We won state championship that year. No, just kidding. We won one playoff game, one. But that was the first playoff game in our school's history. See, that's what the Lord is doing, as he calls Haggai. If I can use the language or the rhetoric of a Haggai, it's this, come on, church. We need to stop pretending. We need to stop making excuses. And we need to be honest. We need to be honest before God, and we need to be honest before each other. You know, in the context of um, worship and small group, you know, I wonder how often we talk about sin. How often we're willing to show our true selves. How often there's repentance and reflection going on. You know, contrast that to the self-promotion, to the sugarcoating of our lives that happened in these groups. When we walk into church, we walk in as if we have everything figured out and we're just judging other people. And I'm guilty of this as much as the next person. If the church really is the hospital for sinners, where are all the sinners? Sometimes church feels more like a country club than it does a hospital for sinners. No, here's a practical application for the church in our small groups. In your community groups, as you gather, please do not be afraid to show your true self. We confess that we're a sinner. We know that we're a sinner. We all know how sinful we are. Yet we fail to confess, to share, and to repent together. Or in the context of worship, and don't be hesitant to sing the songs and listen to the word preached in a way that actually acknowledges your need for grace. You know, frankly, it's not important if you like the music or you don't like the music, if the preaching is to your taste or not to your taste. See, these are all just expressions of our need for God, and so would you receive it in that manner? 
You know, in Luke 18, Jesus, he draws his disciples' attention to two people in the temple worshiping God. One was a sinner. And he's beating his chest, and he's saying just this one line. He's saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He felt the gravity of his sin so, that, so much so that he couldn't even lift up his head. And he stood afar, and he kept beating his chest. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. And then there's a Pharisee. He held his head high and proud. And he's saying, thank you that I'm not like those people. Church, who were we more like? You see, the prophet rebukes our hypocrisy. The prophet rebukes our self-deception. And he does so not so that God can judge us, but so that we can be the real us, the authentic us before him, so that we can come trusting in his grace. See, the more we acknowledge our sins and confess who we truly are, the more we give praise and acknowledge the power of the cross. So the prophet, he rebukes. He rebukes us not for going wayward, but he rebukes us for our hypocrisy. Now is not the time. Now is not the time when they were busy going about building their own homes. The second thing the prophet does is he reveals. The the people at this time, they had grown cold. They were indifferent. They were apathetic. They had forgotten the mission altogether. The cause of God, that was no longer of concern to them. See, the temple represented in a physical way God's promise to dwell with his people. And their neglect revealed that they didn't really care for it. They were more interested in building their own homes, pursuing their own comfort and their own convenience. And comedian Hassan Minaj once said, convenience is the commodity that matters most to our generation. It was true for the Israelites during that time as well. They didn't want to deal with the opposition And all they sought was their own comfort. In the midst of this, Haggai reveals something astonishing. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says this, You have sown much, and you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You know what's going on during the time of Haggai? Just like today. There's hyperinflation. The people were busy pursuing their own happiness, but their resources were depreciating faster than they were able to gather. It's like they were holding a melting ice cube. They were living their lives for the full enjoyment. They had neglected God altogether. They convinced themselves that happiness was the way to live, that they needed to pursue after happiness, and that the way to happiness and fulfillment was having more than others. But Haggai reveals their heart's condition. These people, as they go on pursuing their own good and their happiness, they are not satisfied. Their hearts aren't content. They never have enough. There is no satisfying their desire. Uh, In November 2020, uh, a man by the name of Tony Shea uh, tragically died. His death became a national story because before his death, 
he was in fact one of Silicon, Silicon Valley's well-known entrepreneur. He was the former founder and CEO of Zappos. And uh, he's someone that I spent a lot of time just thinking about. Um, and someone that I, I think personally, I admired him. He was a man who spent his entire life pursuing happiness. Uh, in 2010, he wrote a book, Delivering Happiness. And all he wanted to do, all he wanted to do was be happy. He was an unconventional leader and businessman, to say the least. And as the CEO of Zappos, his mission was to make his employees happy, to make customers happy, and his shareholders happy. Now, business, in business, usually uh, you compromise or you sacrifice your employees' uh, happiness for the sake of your customers' happiness. But Tony Shea, he didn't want to do that. He changed entirely how on online retail worked. For those of you who know who shopped at Zappos, uh, he offered free returns up to one year. You can wear your shoes, and a year later you can return them. Tony Shea was really someone who didn't care about money. His net worth was about $800 million, and he lived in a small 240-square-foot trailer. See, Tony Shea had this vision for building an ideal community. He poured $350 million of his own money into rebuilding downtown Las Vegas. He invited employees, employees, small businesses, everyone to come to downtown Las Vegas, and he poured money into this community because he wanted to create some sort of utopian society. He thought he could recreate the unity and the bliss that he experienced at raves and at events like Burning Man. He thought that he could have this spill over into societal living, but what he sought, he couldn't find. In 2020, he tries this again in Park City, Utah. And the more he pursued this dream, the more he started to spiral downward into depression and loneliness. Tony always had people around him, but he struggled deeply with loneliness. Tony was known to have a drug problem, ketamine and ecstasy. But in the last few months of his life, he started to deprive himself of the essentials of life. He stopped eating, stopped sleeping. He was known to suffocate himself because he wanted that feeling of after suffocating himself or after a long time, that feeling of taking that first breath of air, that experience of life is what he desired. He wanted life. He did so for a few months. And in November 2020, he suffocated himself to death. You know, Tony Shea's story is, I think, revealing of a man who pursued happiness his entire life, of a man who wanted to experience life. But how does he go about it? He deprives himself of the essentials of life just so that he can taste just a little bit of it. See, why is it, friends, that when we pursue happiness, we always find ourselves less and less content? Why is it that when we have more comfort, more conveniences, happiness seems further and further away? This is what the prophet Haggai is revealing. He's revealing that happiness doesn't come when we pursue happiness, but happiness comes from pursuing our maker. 
Look at what he says in today's verse. As he draws upon the people's discontentment, as he draws upon the people's emptiness, as he draws upon the people struggling, he says this. He doesn't say, hey, listen, you need to better yourself. You need to take care of yourself. What you need is really self-care. No, what does he say? He says, seek my glory. Seek my glory. That's the solution to our emptiness. Or as St. Augustine has said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, the Lord has made us for himself. And the only way that we will find true satisfaction and contentment is when we find See, church, the call to return and rebuild is not for the sake of repairing the fragile ego of a fragile God. No, the call to return and rebuild is for our sake. It's to satisfy our restless souls as we find our rest in Him. See, as He reveals the symptom in us as he shows the emptiness that we are struggling with, as he shows the discontentment that we all have, what does he say? He says, go and build so that I may be glorified. Why? Because when he is glorified, that is when we are most satisfied. The last thing he does, and shortly is this, the prophet Haggai reminds them of God's promise. Look with me in Haggai uh, 1, verse 13. We didn't read 13, but he says this. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. You see, this promise, they, the people were reminded of this promise even before they started building It wasn't, hey, listen, you need to re-engage. You need to come back. You need to restart this project all over again, and then I will be with you. That's not what God says. God doesn't say, hey, rebuild this temple first, and then I will be with you. No, he says this, I am with you. I am with you. And the temple was a physical symbol of his promise to be with his people. You see, friends, the promise of God being with us is not dependent upon our response. The temple is not necessary for God to be with his people. God had promised to be with his people always. See, friends, as we think about who Christ is as our temple, see, we have to understand that God, he loved us not because Christ died for us, But Christ died for us because he loved us. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he loved us not because his son gave himself up for us, but he loved us first. That's why he gave his son. You see, I think that radically changes the way we view in which God, the way we think about how God pursues us. His pursuit of us, his relationship with us, his desire for us is not dependent upon our response or anything that happened. It's not conditioned upon anything. But he promises himself to us. He vows himself to us to the point of giving up his son so that he can be near 
to us. This is the promise that we have. It's not return and rebuild and then I will be with you, but it's I will be with you. I am with you. If you need any evidence, my son, look at the cross. That is evidence that I am with you. That is my promise. Would you now draw near to me? Friends, I don't know exactly what it is that you're struggling with or what sins you are dealing with. But the message of Haggai is this. Be honest before the Lord. Confess your sins before Him and to one another. He is a forgiving and loving God. Draw near to Him as He draws near to you. Would you join me in prayer at this time?